Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. I'm Federica Cherubini. Today we're kicking off a special series dedicated to the Digital News Report 2021, which you've just published. For the next six episodes, we'll dive deep into the findings of the report, the most comprehensive piece of research on news consumption around the world. This year's edition is based on a survey of more than 92,000 people in 46 countries, including for the first time, India, Indonesia, Thailand, Nigeria, Colombia, and Peru. Our guests today are Nick Newman, lead author and senior research associate at the Institute, and Rasmus Nielsen, co-author and director of the Reuters Institute. Nick and Rasmus will guide us through the key findings of the report. Welcome both, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Let's get started. We're now over a year into the coronavirus pandemic, and while the situation is improving in some parts of the world, it's still a dire one in other regions. The news industry, as almost everything else, has been impacted by the crisis, but the pandemic has also shown the value of accurate and reliable information at a time when lives are at stake. Nick, what does the report find out about the impact of the pandemic on the public new consumption? Well, as you suggest, Federica, I mean, no two countries are the same. And, you know, over the last year, we've seen huge peaks of consumption on the one hand at various stages. Um, but now consumption is sort of coming back to more normal levels. And in fact, in some of the focus groups we did, we found sort of elements of news fatigue um, setting in as well. But, in, it, you know, if we look at lasting effects, probably one of the biggest has been on, on print, on printed newspapers. So we see sharp, very sharp declines in most of the countries we look at due to problems of, of access and distribution during the pandemic. Uh, TV news, on the other hand, uh, is still up in sort of parts of Europe in particular. So TV news traditionally uh, has been one of the most trusted sources of news. And then online is sort of up in some countries, down in others. But I think, you know, one of the things we find, uh, particularly in Northern Europe and Western Europe, is some of those brands that have a reputation for trusted and reliable news seem to be still doing a little bit better. So, you know, there's some correlation between, you know, how trusted a brand is and how well it's done through this pandemic. And, and, and I think that, you know, suggests, you know, as, as you suggest, um, people are more acutely aware of the importance of reliable information at this time. You mentioned trust, Nick, and, and after a few years of decline, the survey suggests that trust in news is up in quite a few countries. Um, but why do you think that happened? Yeah, I mean, a really significant jump. Uh, on average, across all 46 countries, trust is up six percentage points. So uh, 44% say they trust most news most of the time. Uh, that's not great, but it's but it's better than it was last year. And and I think um, you know there are different factors at, at play in different countries. But to some extent, this is really recognition that the media has played a critical and valuable role in informing people. And you know I also think that to some extent, COVID has sort of squeezed out some of the very divisive and partisan debates that were a feature, you know, before this crisis started. Uh, and we know that some of those debates have sort of undermined news media trust because the news media was seen as sort of part, part of, of, of those debates too, at least in some countries. Uh, and maybe just one final 
final point, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting to look at the US where, which is now the lowest country in trust. So only 29% so they trust trust the news most of the time. And it hasn't gone 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 up at all in the United States. And to some extent, I think that that that's because the story has been different there. You know, we've had um, we've had the divisions over a, over a stolen election. We've had divisions over over race. And so perhaps it's not surprising that trust has remained rock bottom. Thanks, Nick. Rasmus, to follow up on what we were saying that, you know, at a time when people have been reminded of the importance of value of a trustworthy news from some independent news organization, what are people's concern when it comes to misinformation? I mean, we continue to find that there are very large parts of the public who are concerned about whether the news they come across online is real or fake. And when we look more closely at what issues people are concerned about and say they see misinformation about, it really runs the gamut. I mean, coronavirus and politics loom large. These are the two topics that people, most people say that they've seen misinformation on. But there are many other issues too, like climate change, for example. When we turn from overall levels of concern and the topics that people are concerned about and try to understand better what people see as the drivers of these different problems, Amongst the sources, the overall finding is very clear. It is again this year that um, domestic politicians are named as the most concerning source of false and misleading information by more people than any other source, uh, almost twice as many as the next options on the list. And then if we turn from sources to platforms, then really it's Facebook as a corporation that is the center of public concern. So um, 29% identify domestic politicians as the source of misinformation they're most concerned about. And 28% identify Facebook, Big Blue, as the most concerning uh, platform for misinformation with messaging applications next at 15%. And of course, several of these are owned by Facebook, including WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. Now, as Nick said, um, the crisis has provided a reminder of the value of trustworthy news and, and the trust level overall has increased to a level not seen since 2018 in our research. But I think we also just need to contend with the fact that there still is a significant minority of people who identify journalists and news media as the most concerning source or platform of uh, false and misleading information. And actually, there is about as widespread concern about journalists and news media as there are about messaging applications. So clearly there is a sort of um, significant minority who are very concerned about journalism as potentially being part of the misinformation problems that we face in our societies. Nick, continuing this, this, this line of thought, in the last few months we've seen many news organizations grappling with the issue of impartiality. Um, what does the survey say about people, people's expectation of impartiality and objectivity in news? Yeah, I, th I think this idea of impartial news, where a news outlet tries at least to represent all points of view in, in a sort of neutral way, if you like, has come under a lot of pressure in recent years. Um, so, you know, more partisan news outlets available through the Internet. You've, you've had sort of rise of social media and then, you know, huge polarization uh, in society as well. And I think all of those things together have sort of combined to put pressure on on how journalists have traditionally done some of these things. And many people, of course, argue that, you know, in the age of the internet, you can create your own plurality, um, your own sort of balance, if you like, and you don't need a single news outlet to do it for you. So we've been looking at this um, both in the survey, but also in focus groups we've done in, in sort of four countries, because it is a really complex and nuanced subject. But I think the headline is that there is still a strong majority 
so more than 70% in almost every country we look at, uh, that news outlet should provide that sort of broad range of views and let people decide for themselves rather than sort of take a, a stand on a particular issue or campaign on a particular issue. But, you know, having said that, when we dig down a bit further and talk to people about specific stories, it, it gets a little bit more complicated. For example, you know, uh, there may not be two sides of, um, of uh, a story like um, uh, a domestic violence story, for example, where people think it's okay for a journalist to identify and not be impartial, if you like, or racism. Um, so depending from your starting point, you know, people have very different views of what impartiality looks like. And then sort of finally, I think, you know, there is a, there's a, a gap between the sort of ideal of impartiality that people have in their heads and what they say uh, and actually what they do, where they are often drawn to these sort of quite shouty people, often on television uh, with, with a lot of opinions, who in practice they find sort of more, more interesting and, and more entertaining. Um, but by definition, of course, that that's not impartial in, in, a, in, a, in a traditional sense, at least. This is quite a complex and nuanced issue, as you said. Like, Rasmus, what differences are we seeing across countries around the world? I mean, I, I think it's really important to recognize the point that Nick stressed, which is that in most of the countries that we look at in the report, there are large majorities that say that they want news organizations to try to be neutral, to give equal time to different sides of arguments and to reflect a wide range of viewpoints. Um, and this is a silent majority uh, in otherwise very different contexts across the world. And I think it's quite different from the impression that journalists and editors might get if they pay attention to what is expressed on Twitter or what they hear sort of pundits and politicians opine about. And I think it's quite important to recognize how similar that top-level finding is across the world. Now, of course, there are differences from country to country, and, and there are you know, more polarized and divided environments uh, like Brazil or the US, uh, where there are larger minorities of people who um, want uh, news organizations to take a clearer stance on things um, and uh, show their colors, um, you know, give more time to the side of an argument they find is stronger um, and not be neutral on every issue. But in some ways, I think the more um, noteworthy, perhaps, difference is not so much between countries as within countries. So what we find in many countries are very pronounced uh, differences between the political left and then the political center and right, When in terms of how people identify themselves, where um, the appetite uh, on the left for news organizations to take a much clearer stance is much higher than it is on the, in the political center and on the political right. And in fact, there are a number of countries, including the UK and the US, where uh, there is no majority on the left for news organizations to try to be neutral. Uh, it's sort of split between that and then people who want them to take a stance. Uh, whereas in both this, in the center and on the right, there are very large majorities for, for news organizations uh, trying to be neutral. Another important topic of discussion in the last year, Erasmus, um, in the wake of the broader conversation about diversity, has been whether different parts of the public feel represented in the news coverage. Um, according to the figures we have, which are the groups that feel that the news media cover them unfairly? I think this is a topic where it's again sort of important to stress that what we are dealing with here is public perception. So we're asking people about whether they feel they're being fairly represented 
and views will differ as to what extent uh, people's perception and judgment of this are sort of backed by empirical reality. Uh, you know, I can feel aggrieved uh, and have a grievance, and I can feel aggrieved uh, with something that others might not think of as a legitimate grievance, um, or perhaps a lack of empathy with how um, other people are treated in society. Uh, that said, I think some of these patterns are well aligned with, uh, you know, what analysis of actual news content and news coverage would suggest. So, you know, women, in particular younger women, uh, often feel less fairly covered by the media than men, in particular older men. Um, in the countries where we have data on this, uh, most importantly, the United States, uh, ethnicity and race matters greatly. So black Americans and Latinx Americans uh, feel less fairly represented and covered in the media than white Americans. And there are regional differences that I think are also well aligned with uh, you know, what uh, outside analysis might suggest about the media coverage. So, you know, um, states in the former GDR in the east of Germany, uh, parts of the deep south in the United States uh, and the northeast in the UK are, are areas where people don't necessarily feel that their region is well represented or fairly represented in the media. But there is another axis of this, which is politics, uh, which often shapes people's perception of the media. And we find that political partisans are often the most discontent, if you will, particularly on the right in many countries. In the United States, huge discontent on the political right, um, but also in a number of other countries, Germany, Spain, elsewhere. And then there are some countries like the UK, where actually it's people on the political left uh, who are most unhappy uh, with how they're covered. Uh, perhaps that reflects in the UK case, a situation where, of course, historically, many of the major newspapers have been sort of center-right or right-wing in their editorial line, um, and many on the left may feel aggrieved by that, even if we sometimes hear a bit more uh, from press critics uh, on the right. Thanks, Rasmus. Um, Nick, as in previous year, the report also focuses on the role of social networks um, and the evolution of the public's consumption and attitudes toward different platforms. What does the report find about this? Yeah, I think there's some really interesting trends, many of which we've reported on for a few years now, but I think you know we've seen an acceleration of some of these. Firstly, the move of, to closed messaging apps. So um, we've seen the growth of WhatsApp, but also this year, Telegram. Um, being used for news, but also being used for um, for false misleading information as well in a number of countries. Um, so partly that is people moving away uh, to some extent from sort of open networks. Um, uh, and it's also partly due to the fact that during the pandemic, uh, we've become uh, used to talking to friends and families in groups. Uh, I think that's been a real sort of theme of the lockdown. Um, so there's sort of a couple of reasons why I think um, we've seen acceleration there. And then I think the second thing is the sort of evolution of youth-focused social networks like Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok. And really these networks have very little to do with news at all um, until very recently. But this year they've become uh, a real locus for debate about everything from Black Lives Matter uh, to the Israel-Palestine conflict and, you know, a lot of memes and discussion of coronavirus too. Uh, so we find in our data that over a quarter of 18-24s, for example, say that they use Instagram for, for news each week. So that might be sharing news, discussing news uh, or consuming news. And one in 10 say they use TikTok for news as well. Uh, and we're also seeing outside Europe, we're seeing these networks 
um, at the heart of a number of the sort of student-led uh, protests around the world against inequality, for example, in Peru uh, and also in, in, in Thailand. And that's really a combination of some of these networks. So Instagram, TikTok, and, and actually YouTube as well have been used to organize some of those protests and also disseminate footage and, and all the rest of it. The report also shows that journalists don't have so much influence in these newer networks, doesn't it? Right. One of the one of the things we asked this year was uh, where do you pay attention when you're in these different networks? So, you know, are you looking at journalists and mainstream media companies or are you, you listening to and paying attention to ordinary people or politicians, you know, when it comes to news? Um, what we find is in Twitter, yes, people are paying most attention to journalists. But if you look at Instagram, if you look at TikTok, if you look at Snapchat, it's really personalities uh, of various types, you know, it might be celebrities or or uh, musicians or comedians or, or, or influencers of different types. And increasingly, they have been talking about um, uh, things like Black Lives Matter and, and uh, free school meals. I mean, Marcus Rashford famously in the UK, the Manchester United footballer uh, who has 15 million Instagram followers, by the way, um, you know, forced a, a change of, of government policy. And that was partly driven through, uh, you know, the influence he has in social channels. And uh, somebody like Boris Johnson has 1 million Instagram followers. So it, it's a bit of a mismatch. Um, Nick, you've, you've also been studying the rise of audio for a few years now. Um, how have audio consumption trends changed in the last year? And has this, what has this meant for podcast? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit mixed, really. I mean, on the one hand, you've, you've had in many countries the loss of the commute, and that was really a, a place where a lot of people listen to on-demand audio. But then on the other hand, you've had sort of new opportunities opening up with, uh, you know, pandemic walks or, or listening, uh, you know, in different places in, in the home. Um, if you put all that together, the overall effect's been pretty neutral, I think, in terms of consumption. Um, but on the supply side, of course, we're seeing... Uh, continued growth so you know the number of podcasts I think is, has grown to more than two million in the Apple directory now and including a lot of new news podcasts so we've had you know Le Mans for example starting a daily news podcast um, uh, DR the public broadcaster in Denmark uh, and some of these you know started in the heat of, of, of the pandemic and then on the business side you've had sort of the growth of paid content um, that may be Spotify paying uh, publishers to produce content it's Apple opening up subscription possibilities. Um, and our data really shows that uh, there's a lot of change with platforms. So, you know, it used to be dominated by Apple. Increasingly in some European countries now, we're seeing Spotify as the main platform through which people are consuming uh, podcasts. So it remains a very dynamic space. And I think, you know, one of the things we really focus on the report is, is this huge battle for attention and awareness given the number of podcasts out there and the uh, limited amount of our human attention we can devote to it. Thanks, Nick. Um, I have one final question for you, Rasmus, and, and I'm actually, it's, I'm sure it's one of the most crucial um, ones for some of our listener. What's been the impact of the pandemic on the business of journalism? Um, as far as I've seen, there is some good news, but also some data points that are concerning for the industry as a whole. Well, I mean, I think Nick really hit on it with the example of podcasts. Uh, there is an unbelievably intense attention, uh, competition for people's attention. And of course, that attention in turn is what can drive advertising revenues or consumer payment or donations and the like. Uh, 
and news organizations are very challenged in that uh, battle for people's attention. The pandemic has accelerated the move to a more digital, more mobile, and more platform-dominated media environment. As Nick said at the outset, print uh, decline has uh, accelerated, if anything. Um, many people have discovered uh, on-demand video uh, and streaming and the like uh, during lockdowns and the like. And money is uh, uh, flowing out of offline and legacy platforms and towards the digital environment where advertising goes primarily to Google and Facebook and a limited number of other large platforms. Amazon is growing quickly. Microsoft has significant digital advertising revenues and a limited number of other big platforms. And, and this puts immense pressure on news media, in particular advertising supported news media and in particular those that are still propped up by uh, offline revenues that are in terminal decline, in particular in the print space. Um, so it's really, really challenging and a, and a difficult environment for news publishers to find their way in. That said, we should also recognize that while there are many losers in this environment, there are also a few winners. Uh, the losers, of course, are uh, communities that won't get the journalism uh, that they ought to get and that they uh, deserve. Uh, they are journalists who work for publishers who either haven't or can't adapt uh, to the new situation and who lose their jobs, even uh, though in many cases they're doing really important and valuable work. Um, but there are also winners, and we should recognize that. Um, and we see that, I think, in particular in the subscription space where while the overall growth is limited, it is still only a small minority of, uh, of our respondents who say they pay for online news, some individual titles are doing very well indeed. Um, it's a very strong winner-takes-most market in most countries with uh, a limited number of often upmarket national brands uh, accounting for something like half of all digital subscriptions for news. But for those titles, things are going very well often. Um, and increasingly well, as a virtuous circle allow them to invest in distinct quality journalism that in turn drives more subscriptions, that in turn allow them to invest more in both their journalism and their product. So it's a quite an encouraging outlook for a limited number of upmarket titles. It's also, I think, important to recognize that there are uh, smaller entrants of various sorts, niche-oriented uh, or digital-born uh, media that are doing really well. El Diario in Spain, Mediapart in France, The Daily Maverick in South Africa and others. So it's a grim outlook for the industry at large, um, as news organizations often struggle to attract and retain people's attention and loyalty and convince them to pay for what they're offering. Um, but there are, I think, a, a number of really green shoots and also some uh, storied organizations that have come out stronger on the other side of the crisis, uh, and our data certainly supports that. Thanks, Rasmus. Nick, one final word on, on, on the aspect on, on, on the business side. What is your main takeaway from the finding on the report um, in addition to what um, Rasmus said about the business? I, mean, I, th I think the other thing is just the, you know, you have to look at who is paying and who is not prepared to pay. And it tends to be um, those with more money who are paying and also uh, older groups. I mean, the, we've looked at the average age of those who are paying for an ongoing subscription. And, you know, in, in most countries, it's over 50. So that is younger than print subscribers. But it's still, you know, it's not attracting the next generation of subscribers. And I think that's really something that publishers are going to need to focus on more. And, you know, think about what it is. Is it, is it about price? 
Is it about the type of journalism and agenda that they're producing that is not attracting younger people? Or is it just that they, they, you know, they, they don't have um, sufficient money uh, to pay for uh, one, or, or actually what they really want is to access lots and lots of different titles because they've grown up with a sort of frictionless internet and they don't want to be tied down. So I think there's a lot of sort of factors which need unpicking behind that, which publishers need to think about increasingly. Thanks, Nick. Thank you both for joining us. Um, and thank you to our listeners for following our first episode of the Digital News Report 2021 podcast series. Our guests today were Nick Newman, lead author of the Digital News Report 2021, and Rasmus Nielsen, co-author of the report and director of the Reuters Institute. In the next episode, we'll talk about how and why consumers access news on social media. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our Twitter bio or going on our homepage. You can find the report online at digitalnewsreport.org slash 2021. This was Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute. I'm Federica Cherubini and we'll be back soon.